Thank you for joining us for the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue our way through the book of James. So I asked Nick as I walked up, do I have to preach barefoot because you sang barefoot and then Rachel just did announcements barefoot. And he said, I was just trying to make her feel better because she actually broke her shoe. She asked, can I still do announcements even with a broke shoe? So I think Nick was just trying to make her feel better. Um, It still smells like feet up here, but I'm glad to have the opportunity. Hey, today we're going to ask this question, and the question is this, what does my faith produce? And this is always a tough thing as I'm looking, as I'm kind of preparing to, to be able to speak. As I do that, um, everything I'm sharing with you comes out of an overflow of what God has already been doing in my own heart and my own life. And so it may even sound strange having a title of what does my faith produce instead of saying, what does your faith produce? But that's where I am. Because where I dive in and where I I love to stay in Scripture is, what does this apply to my life first and foremost? Because if it's not applying to my life, how, God, can I expect and, and ask you to do something through my life to apply to others' lives? And so as we dive into this, I want to give you that challenge as well as you look at it. Don't just write down or don't just think about it as a title of how does faith apply to your life. No, no, no. How does it apply to my life personally? For each one of us, what does your faith produce? What does my faith produce? That's really the genuine question here. We're going to talk about, you know, James is one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. Uh, I I love the simplicity of it. I'm a pretty simple-minded man. Um, and so I've been told that many times. And so, uh, it's one of those things that when you read it, it is pretty black and white. However, there's times where people will take it and they'll think, well, we just got to add all these things to it, or we've got to do some different things with it because maybe it's not enough. And so today we're going to look at that and we're going to talk through just the simplicity of the scripture and what it looks like to kind of walk through that. As we get started, I want you to think about We're going to, if we were going to go on a journey today and and we were going to plant a garden together, okay, let's think about this. We're going to go out and we're going to begin to plant. We're going to plant a garden together. We're going to, um, you know, begin uh, to to go out and work the soil. We're going to go out and we're going to begin to kind of till it up and get it all ready. The first house that we bought, my wife and I, uh, we, we moved into it and I wanted to have a garden. We always had a garden growing up. Uh, My dad had a a very large corn garden as I was growing up. I remember taking the wheelbarrow out as we would harvest the corn and then bringing it in and shucking it and, you know, cutting it off. And, you know, mom would freeze in those freezer bags. And I think we ate cream corn for the next seven years off of one harvest of corn. Uh, My dad was real ambitious about planting one particular year. But it was one of those things that as I grew up, we always had a garden. And it wasn't an option of um, hey, do you want to go out and work in the garden? It was an option of, uh, hey, today you're going to go pull weeds in the squash and the okra, and then tomorrow you're going to do it in the corn, and then tomorrow you're going to take the hoe and you're going to, you're going to you know, put things around it. And so it was always just one of those things that I did. So when we moved into the house, it was like one of the first things I did when we, when we bought this half-acre piece of land was that had this house, and was, is I looked at the back corner, I said, there's enough sun here, I can put a garden in. And so sure enough, you know, they had cleared out these trees and it was a good area. And so I went down and and as I began to prepare 
the area for the garden, I remember taking the, the, the tiller, and as I start going through it, I don't get but about two and three inches deep, and I start hitting these big chunks, these big rubber chunks of tire, recycled tire. So immediately, I knew they use these in putting down septic lines as, as fill for, as a replacement of gravel. And so I had to go, I had to stop, go pull plans, look back, see, am I going to hit a septic line? Is this, hey, if I am, it may be a really good area for garden, I'm just saying. But it was one of those things that as I started to get through it, I realized, I'm like, there, there is no septic lines here at all. What in the world is going on? And I came to the realization that I believe that the contractor who was building the house told the guy who was putting in the septic lines, if you have all that extra rubber tire and everything, there's a good clear area back here on the back left-hand corner of this lot. Go dump it all right there, smooth it out, put a couple inches of dirt on it. Nobody will ever know. You can get rid of it. And I believe that's what he did because for the next three years, as I worked that ground to plant that garden, every single year I would go out and I would till, I would pull out so much of this rubber-used tire, these chunks. And it became like the, 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 I mean, just my existence was like, I hate these things. What I did find, though, is they were good weed control because you could take those and lay them up against and, and it would keep down on the weeds. And so it was just one of those things, though. As I planted that garden, I worked it, I got the soil ready, and I would get those beds ready, got my lines ready, got my rows ready. And so today, as we think about that, if we were going to plant a garden, we would get those things ready. We would work the ground. We would do that work. And as we worked the ground, as we did that work, we would get those rows ready. I mean, we would get it to where, I mean, it would just be perfect. You could look at it and you could see and you could lay out, we're going to put corn here. We're going to put beans there. We're going to put squash there. We're going to put okra there. We're going to put tomatoes here. We're going to, you can lay it out. You can know it. And so then when we get it all ready, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over to Paul's house because I know he's got a great garden. And we're going to cut his stuff off right at the top of the ground. We're going to cut his corn off. We're going to take it. We're going to stick it in the ground in our garden. And then we're going to take the squash. We're going to cut the vine, carefully pull it over. And we're going to just stick it in the garden. Put it in the ground. Just cover it up just a little bit. We're going to do the same thing with the okra. Stick the stalks in the ground. We're going to do the same thing with tomato plants, cages and all. We're going to pull them up and go and go set them into our garden and just kind of cover up the stem. What's going to happen with that garden within a few hours? It's going to wilt. It's not going to survive. Why? Because that's not the way that it works. It doesn't work like that. If you want a garden, you can't just go out there and take somebody else's stuff that they planted. You couldn't even buy it. Even if you bought it at a store, you couldn't buy it and just go stick an ear of corn in the ground and expect it to, to produce. No, it doesn't work like that. The way that it works is you go and you work the soil. You go and you work the soil and you get it ready. And then you take those seeds and you got to put those seeds in. Then you got to water it. Then you got to care for it. Then you got to water it again. You got to fertilize it. You got to take care of it. You got to go back through. You got to weed it. You got to take care of it, right? And when you do that, what happens? That seed germinates. That seed begins to sprout. And as it grows up high, guess what happens? It grows down deep as well. What gives the garden the opportunity to produce fruit is this, or the vegetables is this. It produces because of the roots. It produces not because of the stem that's just sitting there in some dirt. It produces because of the roots that you don't see. And so, man, the book of James for me is one of those things that as you grow in your walk and as you grow in your journey, it's just like any book in Scripture. But James is this for me. The deeper rooted that I am, in Scripture, guess what? The more that I will produce. And so this is going to come back in play in what we're going to read today. Just the opportunity to be able to see 
it's not just about what you can see above the ground, but it's about the roots that you don't see. Let's dive into this. James chapter 2. We're going to look at James 2, 14 through 26. I'll give you guys an opportunity to open up or to turn to it while I get an opportunity to catch my breath and drink somebody's water I found over on the edge of the stage. Just being honest. All right, so James chapter 2 lays it out in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? You know, can, your, can such faith save you? No. Such a bro, su, uh, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. One of you says, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed but does nothing about his physical needs or what, you know, what, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied with action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is a God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor considered righteous for what he did as he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled and it says, God believed, or Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. We're going to come back to that as well. You see that a person is justified, okay, by what he does, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them out in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that as you uh, just open up, Father, our hearts to hear what you have to, to share with us today. God, I pray that, Father, I would be a mouthpiece that I would not get in the way. Father, that if there's anything you would desire to come out, you would bring it forth. Father, if there's anything you would desire to hold back, you keep it in. Father, I pray that you would give me wisdom. Father, as we walk through this together, I pray that as we do, God, you would continue to speak into my own journey, my own life. Father, of what I can do, God, to continue to produce a faith. Father, that, that, that have a faith that produces just in my own journey. I pray as an overflow of that, Father, you would give that to each of us. Have us uh, just be able to have ears that would hear, Father, and a heart that is open, Father, for your word. God, we just thank and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we dive in, you think about this. You think about that garden. You think about the way that we would lay it out. As you would think about it, as we would take and as we would put a stalk in the ground and we would see it just sit and wilt and, and, and it wouldn't happen. I mean, I could take a picture of it, you know, within 30 minutes of planting it the way that we, we laid it out that's not the right way. And from the outside and from the picture, you would look at it and say, oh, it's a beautiful garden. But you come back three hours later and it's wilted and everything is dying, right? Here's why. Because you can not see exactly everything that there is going on just from that picture. I want you to think about your own journey. What is your faith? If you took a picture of what your faith looks like, what does your faith really look like? Are there actions that support what your faith looks like? Is there works that are there that support what your faith looks like? And so as we dive into this, 
you know, there's been some, you know, some controversy about even this, this uh, what James is laying out here compared to what Paul lays out. You know, you, you think about Paul and he lays it out, that faith versus works argument that people want to bring up. Um, you know, you, you hear people want to bring up just this faith versus works, um, you know, argument of, you know, how, you know, it, it all, you know, you show me this, I'll show you that. And, and they take and they, they take out of context even what James is saying. You know, Paul says, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you can look and you can see he lays out, says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, okay, all right, that, that through faith, not from yourselves, okay, it's the gift of God, not works, not by works so that no man can boast. You know, and so as you think back and you think through this legalistic system that they grew up with, right, back during, you know, the, the, the New Testament times, you can think back to when, you know, even in the Old Testament, that God laid it out and said, hey, here are 10 things I would like for you guys to live your life by, 10 things to live it by. From those 10 things, then you have these religious leaders who come and they build up 613 precepts to support these 10 simple things that God laid out. From there, from each one of these 613, they go and they put in a couple of extras underneath each one of them just to support each one of them. And so they made the faith be so difficult and complicated. They made the faith be so action-based, so works-based. You've got to follow these things in order to be this. And so when Jesus comes in, he begins to lay it out, and he says, hey, here is where they are. I am going to come, and I'm going to upgrade what you have heard. I'm going to upgrade what you've seen. I, I, I'm not going to take away from any of those things. I'm going to build on that base of what it is. And we're going to get back to true what simple faith looks like. And so as you hear this argument of, you know, that, that James would say, you know, that, you know, I'll show you my, my, my faith by my works. You know, you'd see, you know, as the body without spirit is dead, faith without deeds is dead. You know, people will take that and try to turn it against what Paul has laid out, that it's by grace, you know, it's by grace that you're saved. And so, you know, as we go through this, you know, Paul, Paul is talking about, if you think back to that garden, Paul is talking about the roots, okay, those roots of our justification, while James is talking about the fruit of our justification. If you think about it in your journey, you know, what does your faith really look like? Is it deeply rooted that gives you the ability to produce fruit? And we're going to kind of walk through this. We'll go through and we'll look at, you know, first, as I, as I kind of wrestle through this, and I've wrestled through this in my own journey, in my own life, is, you know, that, that whole faith plus no action equals empty faith. If you think about it, faith plus no action equals empty faith. Look at James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? You know, suppose a brother or a sister was out clothes or daily food. One says, God, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. Does that do anything? No. If he doesn't do anything to help with his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, he lays out faith by itself is not accompanied by actions is dead. You know, so that faith plus no, you know, that, that faith plus no action equals that empty faith. And so, you know, you can say you have a relationship with Jesus, but what does your life show? You can say you have faith in him, but what does your life show? Then you can go, you know, to another extreme. You can say action plus no faith equals empty works. Action plus no faith equals empty works. 
you know, I can go out and I can do all these things. And I have a couple of friends who are, you know, very benevolent minded, but they have no relationship with Jesus at all. And they want to throw out the things they do for other people that will get them into heaven. I'm sorry, it's not by the works that you do that just gets you there. And so you can look at it. You can see, you know, that, that, that action plus no faith that equals empty works. You know, in James 2.18, you know, somebody will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith, but what do I do? You know, so he's not laying it out saying, hey, it's just about what you do. It's not, he's not saying it's just the action that you take. It's not saying it's just the works that you take. He's saying, hey, you do these things. I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's not saying, I'll show you my faith alone. I'll show you my faith all because of just, it starts with what I do. He's laying it out, it's a, it's a combination. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, so it, this is a question that rocked me in my life. As I was really trying to figure out in that, in that, that crisis of faith, like who is God to me? Is it going to be more than just mom and dad's? religion that I grew up in? Who is God to me? And one of the questions that I wrestled with the most was this question as I was walking through this passage or walking through some other scripture was this, what is the difference? What is the difference between what you believe about God and what Satan believes about God? What's the difference between what you believe about God and what the demons believe about God? See, because here's the deal. They believe that Jesus is God's own son. They believe that God provided Jesus as the sacrifice to heal the world. They know this. They, they even believe and know that God raised Jesus from the dead. So let me ask you, what is the difference between what they believe about Jesus and what you believe? What's the difference between what they believe about God and what you believe? <clears throat> the difference for me became this. They cannot say that they've surrendered to his plan, to his will, to his purpose. See, the difference between what I believe about Jesus and what the demons believe about Jesus is this. They can't say, I have a relationship with him. They can't say that they have asked him to forgive them. They can't say that they have asked him to empower them. Because when you pray and you surrender your life to Jesus, guess what? You receive, it lays it out in John, you receive that Holy Spirit. You receive the, the gift, the comforter, the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to live life, not on your own any longer, but through him. He gives you that opportunity. So just review for a minute. <clears throat> faith without action equals empty faith. Action plus faith, or action plus no faith equals empty works. <clears throat> now, this is where I struggled. The next place was this. <clears throat> Faith plus action equals a merit-based faith. Let me explain that for just a second. 
that faith plus action equals a merit-based faith. When we start taking and inserting anything else in there, it equals that merit-based faith. Which is greater? Which is more important? It gives you those denominational arguments. It gives you those, <clears throat> those arguments over which is greater, here or there. You know, you can look and you can hear some say that faith is greater than action. People will come out and they'll talk about how faith is greater than action. Then you'll have others who come out and they'll say, no, action is greater than faith. And you can hear this along denominational lines. You can hear this just even in the church world, talking about how faith is greater than action, how actions is greater than faith. And the issue is what you put in the middle. The issue is not, you know, the faith plus or the faith plus. The, the, the issue is this, faith equals action. In our life, when you have a relationship with Jesus, faith equals action. It's not a plus. It's not a greater than, less than. It is a faith equals action. Because here's the deal. They go hand in hand. As you look at what Paul laid out, as you look at what James laid out, they are complementing one another. They are going together and they are complementing one another. Faith equals action, which multiplies followers of Jesus. And when we live our life in that way, where we live our life of faith that way, it produces those actions, okay? Faith equals actions. <clears throat> you can see that through James 2, 21 through 26. He lays out the, the illustration of Abraham. You know, Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered Isaac his son at the altar. Was he considered righteous because he offered him there? Or was he considered righteous because, no, no. He, was, he, he offered him because of his faith. That faith equaled action. He brought him and laid that out. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And that's what's so incredible about the scripture. You can look and you can say, what is the motive? What is the heart behind it? People as I talk a lot of times with, with folks about what does, what is sin, what is not, what is God's will, what is not, what is your intention, what, as we go through it, it always comes down to me is what is the heart behind it? And <clears throat> the heart behind it is going to show why you're doing what you're doing. That verse 23, it was fulfilled when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. In your journey, in your faith, what does it look like with him? What does your faith look like with God? What does your relationship look like with God? Does God look at you as his friend? You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. He's laying it out. James is saying, hey, here's just one of those things. You can say you have this faith. James is not minimizing that. James is building on it and saying, hey, it is this equals, your faith equals that action. Your faith equals the works that it produces. In the same way, you know, it lays out in verse 20, 25. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? How did she do that? What did she do? She saw, she had faith of what they had said, and she said, my faith is going to have these actions. Okay, it equals. My faith equals these actions. Verse 26, as, a spotty, as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. As a follower of Jesus, listen, I, I want to do good out of not out of necessity, not out of necessity, but out of that desire that I have. I desire to do that good. Why? Because the faith of what I've seen God do in my own life, that journey. The Holy Spirit has made us alive. When we were dead in our sin, we were dead in our transgressions, and what happens? Through that, Jesus, by the forgiveness and the salvation, gives us the ability to be made alive, okay? We're dead in our sin, we're dead in our transgressions, and when we 
seek that forgiveness, he gives us the ability to be made alive. And that doesn't happen because of the good works that we do that produces faith. That happens because of that faith that we have in in our journey in him that produces, okay, that equals, okay, those good works. And so what does your faith look like? What does it really look like? It's not required, but it's desired. In my journey, I desire to go and to share about what he's done in my life. In my journey, I desire to live for him because I know what it was like not to. I see the consequences of it. I desire to live my life for him. Why? Because not of these, not, I'm not afraid of these consequences that will happen, but I just know, like, living my life for Jesus is so much more worth it. When I live my life for him, it is that much more worth it. I have that love. I have that joy. I have that peace. I have that patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I have these things. I have the ability to live that out, to flesh that out. Why? Not because of me, but even in spite of me. Not because of the actions that I take, but because the faith that I have that produces that fruit. You know, back to that story that we, we, we planted in the garden. You know, what produces is the ability that we have to really, truly plant those seeds, to water it, to work the ground, to fertilize it, to give it the ability to grow, to pull those weeds out. Because what do the weeds do? They just choke out that faith. The weeds of sin in your life will choke out the faith that you have. It competes for it. And so as you live your life, when you're living for him, he gives you the ability and that desire to be able to take those things and to root those out, to pull them out by the roots. And so, you know, as you do that, that's one of those things that even in your journey, it's hard work. I mean, it's hard work to allow God to help you to de-weed that garden of faith. I can think back and as I, as I, you know, remember some of those early years of gardening, I would think, well, I can take my weed eater and just go down through the rows and hit between the rows and I'll just kind of cut those weeds off. Well, what happens is those weeds just spring right back up and keep on growing. The only way you get rid of a weed is you pull it out by the roots. That's right. You got to pull it out by the roots. And that's a lot tougher. It's a lot harder. Okay? That's why my, 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 that's why my dad gave me a garden hoe when I was eight years old and said, go and hoe the garden. Okay? Why? He didn't want me just cutting them or doing anything. He wanted me taking it and using it to pull those roots up, all right, to, to unearth them, and it killed them. It's the same way in our walk and our journey. I mean, it, it's tough when we deal and we struggle with sin. It's tough in our journey when we deal and we struggle, even walking alongside of family or friends when we walk through that. It's tough when we deal with those things because they can get deeply rooted. Anger, bitterness, lust, envy, any of those things can take root. And, you know, the, the harder that it is, the harder that it is it, it, to, to, to get it out by the roots, the harder that it is, is, is so much harder when it grows that much more. I mean, that's it. I, and, and the we've got, we've got cows and we've got a pasture now and, and we've got, you know, these great little things that they put in bird seed several years ago that now have tried to overtake everything in a cattle pasture and it's called thistle. These little bitty tiny thistle seeds. It's a tiny, tiny seed. And so as you walk out into the pasture, you can look and early on you can look and you can see in the spring, you can see these little 
bitty, jagged plants with these, you know, sharp edges coming up. It's very distinct. And when you see it in the spring, if you do not treat it then, it will be that much harder to take and to get rid of it. And so there was a, a friend of mine that had a pasture um, about seven or eight years ago, and he, he called and said, hey, can you come and help me bush hog? And so I went over and I began helping bush hogging, and the whole thing was covered with thistle. What happens with thistle is this. It's this little plant that starts out really tiny, and it can be in a, a, a great, great, you know, flourishing pasture, and what happens is you get one of those plants, and as it seeds up, it gets higher. And then about this time of year, if you're driving down the road and you look on the sides of the road, you can see it growing in a lot of places, even around here. It'll be about this high, and it has this purple flower. This purple flower, and then it begins to bud out. As it does, it sends these seeds out you know, on, in the wind on these little, white, fluffy pieces of tufts. And as it flies out, it goes all over the place. One plant produces thousands of seeds. And if you don't take care of it, it will take over. And that's what my buddy had. It took over his pasture because he didn't think it was that much to it. And so you could go out and you can cut it, you can cut it. But, I mean, by that time it's too late. And even when you cut it, it lays on the ground and it still opens those seeds out. And it still produces even when it's dead. And so really the only way to, to take care of it is you treat it early. Every year I go out and I take my backpack sprayer and I take that Roundup. And I walk through, and even though they say it causes cancer, I ain't real sure about that because, hey, I know one thing, it kills thistle. <laughs> so I walk around, and guess what? I spot spray for hours. And then I go back through, and I spot spray again about a month later. And guess what? Going through and doing that for hours, as I drive through my pasture, I see, still see five or six of these plants that have made it through. And so what do I do? Have to go cut it and pull it up by the roots. You have to dig it up and you pull it up by the roots. And then I take it and I burn it because I believe it's next to the spawn of Satan as far as thistle goes for a farmer. That's just me. Maybe relative to what you think about may not be. But I'll tell you this, how it is relative is this. You let sin take root. You let sin take root in your life. And I, I can promise you this. It'll be a thousand times more difficult to get rid of sin in your life that has taken and become deeply rooted than it will ever be to take care of thistle in a farm. I can promise you that. And so, like, what do you do? Hey, you give God the opportunity to do it because I've seen people who have been deeply rooted in sin be completely set free, be completely broken and set free because of why? The faith that they have in Jesus to do exactly that. So what I challenge you with is this. Don't waste your life living out a dead faith. Don't waste your life living out a dead faith. Follow after him. Give him the opportunity to be able to see. Give people the opportunity to see what your faith looks like. When people look at you, what do people see about your faith? When they look at you, what do they see about your faith? You talk about and you, you can hear and you can look and even what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16. He lays it out for us, says, hey, let your light shine before men, you know, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's not just the good deeds they see. It's the faith that produces those things. Faith equals action. What does it look like in your journey? You know, if you're putting, it all depends on what you put in the middle. 
If you're putting a faith plus anything in there, it's not going to work out. Faith equals action. And if you don't have that action, do you really have that faith? And that's what I wrestled with. If you don't have that action, do you really have that faith? Because I for years said I was a follower of Jesus, but I did not have any action to show for it. I didn't have any fruit that produced it. I didn't have any that, 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 that was produced because of it. And so, you know, that's that part of like in your journey, what does it look like? Faith in Jesus requires action. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a uh, you can't just say, well, I've got faith and that's, you know, hey, I'm good enough because I do this. And no, 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 like it, it requires action. My faith requires action because I know what Jesus has done in my life. I know the, the difference that it's made. We want to think about the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I'm going to tell you the reality of the gospel is this. The center of God's will is the most dangerous place that you could possibly be. The most dangerous place you could possibly be is in the center of God's will. Why? Because then the enemy is going to do anything and everything he can to attack you to get out of it. You want to live in the center of God's will? Do it this way. It's crazy. You think about this. It's crazy to think about the, the number of friends that I've sent out, the number of of, of, of friends that I've sent out into horrible, dangerous places unless the gospel is true. You think about it. We send people all over the world to tell people about Jesus. We send them to places where they can die because of their faith. They're living in the center of God's will. It is the most dangerous place that you can be but it is absolutely worth it. See, I don't fear my life coming to an end, even if I was going into some of these closed countries where I could be persecuted, kicked out, or even martyred because of my faith. I don't fear going into some of these countries. I don't fear going into some of these neighborhoods. I don't fear going into even some of these conversations with people because of it. I don't fear it coming to an end. I fear those who never really have had a beginning in their faith journey. I fear those who never really had the start that gives them the opportunity to live that out. And so, you know, even being in an office in the world and thinking, well, I really don't want to say much about my faith because even in this culture that we live in, I may be persecuted or I could offend someone. I'm sorry, but the gospel is offensive. And living in the center of God's will is the most dangerous place that you can be because the world desires to come at you and to attack you. And the enemy will desire to come at you and to attack you. And so if you're going to live out a faith that requires that action, the best place that you can do it is in the center of his will. Living it out, doing those things. You think about that relationship between faith and that, that action, the relationship between faith and works in the same way that you would think about even a, a love relationship or even a marital or a marriage relationship. You think about it, the, 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 it works in that same way. It works in that same way as, as, as that, that faith equals action. You think back in, in, in a loving relationship. When you love someone, that action that comes forth shows them and it, it gives you the ability to be able to see why? I mean, I can think back to, to even when I, you think back in your younger years, some of you, think back to the first time that you laid eyes on that love of your life. Think back and you remember how incredible it was for that person to see you. I can remember the first time I met Aaron. 
I was there doing work for this lady that she had a hair salon, and I had gone in, and, and I had known this lady for many years because my mom got her hair did at this hair salon. And so when my mom would go get her hair did, this lady would go give me tasks to go do, pulling weeds or doing whatever around the place that she had. And then as I grew older, she would give me more and more things to go do, like go cut these trees down in my house or go do all my landscape in my yard. And hey, I was 16 years old, needed money, and so I was grateful to get the work. But I remember between my junior and senior year of high school, I had gone out and I was, I was at her shop and she had sent me to go to her house to go cut down a bunch of pine trees and cut up a bunch of stuff. And so I had gone and done that. I had been working all day long and I come back to her shop about three o'clock in the afternoon and I come in and, you know, I am absolutely covered in July sweat, okay? Like July sweat, sawdust, and a mixture of gasoline and chainsaw oil, okay? All right, and so I come in and I've got my nasty, dirty blue jeans on. I've got my dirty work boots on and I am absolutely covered in sweat and all this other good stuff. And as I come in, I walk in and as I'm talking and waiting for Miss Melanie to give me a check to pay me, she has a conversation with this lady sitting in her chair. And as she's having this conversation with this lady sitting in the chair, I can see them kind of conniving and looking back at me, talking and conniving and looking back at me. And I'm wondering, listen, I am dog tired. I've been working at your house since about 6 a.m. this morning. I am ready to go home, take a shower, and get something to eat. I don't know if you guys know me that well, but I like to eat, okay? This morning, Steve sent me a text and I'm praying for you. I had a few other guys send me a text saying, I'm praying for you, praying for the Lord to anoint you this morning as you get ready to speak. And I text him a picture of me sitting at Waffle House with my coffee, my computer, my Bible, and my plate of bacon, egg, cheese, sandwich plate scattered and covered. And said, I'm getting a double anointing this morning. All right? And so, you know, I, I, I like to eat. So I was hungry, okay? I don't get hungry. I get hungry, all right? And as I'm waiting for her to give me a check, she comes in there. And she has the audacity to ask me to go back to her house, which is about 30 minutes away, and go get something off of her table she needs that she left that morning. It was something ridiculous, like a pair of sunglasses or something. And I'm looking going, are you kidding me? And she goes, no, if you'll just go back to my house and go get these sunglasses for me, bring them back to me, I'll pay you a little bit extra. And I'm thinking, I don't care what you pay me right now. I'm ready to go home, take a shower, and I'm ready to eat. And she goes, just please go get this for me. I'm okay. Yes, ma'am, Miss Melanie, because that's the way I was raised. It was a yes, ma'am, Miss Melanie, or else my dad didn't like that. All right? And so, hey, what I do, I go to her house. I go get these things. It takes me an hour. Go get this and get back. I come back in, and I put those sunglasses down. I'm like, Miss Melanie, there's sunglasses for you, and I'm sitting there waiting. And this lady's still in there getting her hair did. And I'm like, my goodness gracious, women, I like, does it really take that long to get your hair did? And so, I, 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 hey, I have learned now. I don't even ask, I even asked that question just a second ago with fear and trembling in my voice. And so here's where we are. I, I, I'm, I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And what I didn't know was that they were setting something up. I am there covered in my sawdust and sweat and nastiness. My cologne was called pine shavings. And as I was sitting there, this young, beautiful woman comes walking through the doors of this hair salon. She walks over to that lady to get some money because I guess she was going to the mall. What I didn't know was this. When I came in, they 
scheme to send me to go get away to get back over there about an hour later so she could scheme to call her daughter to come back in there to get some money to go to the mall to get some shoes or something which my life my wife likes shoes so I understand it it was her weak spot so as I'm sitting there 17 years old my wife that is now my wife 20 years we just celebrated 20 years a few weeks ago and so my wife she comes walking through the doors and my goodness I'm sitting there going, I am absolutely covered and filthy, and this girl right here is walking in. And they walk out, and they introduce us. And they walk away into a complete other room. And now we're standing there just looking at each other like, what are we doing here? And so it was one of those crazy, crazy times. But that is how I met my wife. And from that time on, took a few weeks of Melanie saying, have you called that girl yet? Have you called that girl yet? Hey, she's new in town. She's only lived here for about a year. Have you called that girl yet for me to finally be smart enough to say, okay, I'll call her. So I called her, asked her out. We began to date. And you know what? About five years later, we got married. Now it's been about 25 years since that day. We met each other in that July sun. And I had that nice, sweaty nastiness going on. But what happened that built to this culmination, now 25 years later, three incredible kids, a great and incredible marriage. Why? Because when we began to talk, we began to develop that relationship. We began to, to root it. We began to desire to have that action that was coming from that love, that desire that we had. We began to have communication. We began to deepen things. We began to have more intimate conversations. We began to really truly look and to see what is God looking like in our lives individually and how is he going to draw us together. And this is what I tell people all the time as they're entering these dating relationships. As you're starting these dating relationships, you pursue God with everything that you have. They pursue God with everything they have. And as you both are pursuing God with everything you guys have, you think about a triangle. He is at the top. He's going to draw you guys together if that's what he desires. And that's what, thank God, he did for my wife and I. And so as we walk through that, it deepened that love. It deepened that relationship. It deepened it. And that's the same thing with that faith. Faith in action, you know, that faith develops, okay, deeper and deeper roots that show more and more fruit in that action. And so I challenge you, like, what does that relationship look like for you? What does that relationship look like in your faith journey? There's three questions I want you to consider. Three questions. One, what does my faith produce? I want you to think about it. What does my faith produce? Even as you're sitting there, as you can think through, what does my faith produce? What does it look like in your own life? The second thing is this. Is there anything that's inhibiting me from living out my faith? Those weeds that we talked about of sin, those weeds that we talked about that can take over, those things that can take and that can inhibit us, that, that, that compete for that relationship with God. Or is there anything that's inhibiting me from living out my faith? The third thing is this, am I praying safe prayers? Am I praying safe prayers? Because as you think and as you live out your life, living in the center of God's will sometimes challenges you to pray prayers that are more than, God, thank you for my food, thank you for my family, thank you for my life, bless it. 
sometimes those prayers get even deeper and stronger. Sometimes those prayers lead you to more and more extreme ways to live out your faith, to live out your life, even doing the things that he calls you to do. I have a good friend that was from Louisiana. He lived, he and his wife grew up in a a small country, Louisiana church. As they continued to grow and they continued to develop in their faith, they really began to feel that the Lord was calling them to take some pretty extreme steps in their journey. They had done a lot of work around their area. They had done a lot of work around the southeast even and continuing to to help to develop and to go into difficult areas and to share their faith. And as they continued to do that, the Lord continued to develop them and challenge them. And so, you know, it wasn't long that they knew that they were, you know, really gifted in some areas of language. They were really gifted in learning some difficult languages. And so they began to study Arabic. They began to study and they began to look and to see how they can use their area and what they you know, were passionate about in their walk with Jesus and the giftedness he had given them with language to be able to go and to be able to maybe possibly move to an Arabic-speaking country. And so as they prepared to do this several years ago, God continued to open up doors. They had just gotten married. They had two small kids at the time, and the Lord opened up the opportunity for them to move into the country of Yemen. And this was during a time where Yemen was not a friendly place to believers. And as they began to share and they began to live out, they would, uh, they would find those, they would cast those seeds, scatter those seeds, and, and as they would have conversations about people who were wondering about the way that they would call it, they would continue to have deeper relationships develop with those who were interested in the way. And they would see people come to know Jesus in Yemen. And they would see people begin to desire to follow him. And they were very open about their faith there. The people that were coming to know Jesus were very open about it because they knew that it would cost them everything. But they were willing to consider and count the cost. And so, unfortunately, they saw many of the people that they saw come to know Christ martyred. They saw them either kidnapped or they saw them killed because of their faith. And so as they continued to live out their faith, two different occasions, the State Department knocked on their door and said, you have got to leave, you have got to get out of here. The first occasion, they decided we're, we're going to continue to live this out. We're going to stay. And about three months later, they said, today, they came to their door and they said, today, right now, you are leaving with us. And he said, we're not going anywhere. And he said, we have confirmed evidence that Al-Qaeda has a, a hit on your life and your family's life that is going to happen today. You are leaving and you are going with us. And so that time, they did evacuate. They spent about three months praying through and saying, what are we supposed to do? And the Lord really said, I've got you in my hands. And they led them back. And they lived back there for the next two years before they had to be evacuated through the wars. And as they lived there, they continued to share and they continued to grow and they continued to develop other believers in Jesus. And because of that, even today, there is a stronghold of believers that is there and continuing to spread the gospel like wildfire because the work that they did several years ago. Now this couple with five kids from 17 down to four years old is living in another closed country, continuing to do the same exact thing. 
Why? Because their faith equals action. Now, I'm not saying today that God may be calling you to some country on the other side of the world, but you know what? He may be calling you to have a conversation with somebody that you have in your life right now. He may be calling you to live it out in your own family. He may be calling you to live it out in your workplace. He may be calling you to live it out no matter where you are and wherever you're doing life. That's the challenge. What does my faith look like? In your life, what's your faith garden going to look like? in your journey. Let's pray.